Romans chapter 9. Up here on the board, real quick for review. Titled this class, God's Playbook for Righteousness, because it is the book that God uses to write the doctrinal dissertation, the doctrinal discourse. Listen up. Not repeating myself. You can listen to it in the podcast. The doctrinal discourse of New Testament theology, New Testament doctrine. And because of that, God is very systematic in how he orchestrates all of the chapters. We saw going back, goodness, we're at the halfway point now. We saw going all the way back to chapter 1 that Paul knocks this thing out of the park by talking first and foremost about sin. Whenever you are witnessing to a friend and you're presenting the gospel to them, you better make sure that they know before they know that there's a cure for their salvation, they need to know what disease they have. And so Paul, being our example, starts off talking about sin, specifically that the Gentiles are all under sin. And he goes on in the chapter 2, talking about how the Jews, they are all under sin. It's not just about the sins that we commit in chapter 1, but it's also about the self-righteousness of a lot of people who are either a proclaimed physical child of God in the nation of Israel, or in our case, practically speaking, grew up in church all of our lives, grew up in a Christian home. More on that tonight. And then he concludes it in chapter 3 by saying, because there's only two people, groups in the entire world, a Jew and a Gentile, that means the entire world is all under sin. But I love it. After those three weeks, those three chapters of doom and gloom, he ends it on a good note. And it kind of bleeds into chapter 4 by talking about how Jesus, he chose to justify sinful man when man places his faith and trust in Christ alone. And he talked about in chapter 4, he gave us two Old Testament examples, two Old Testament figures that exemplify this. Anybody remember who they were? They exemplified this faith in, in, in what God had said, faith in the promises. And they were our example of faith in Christ. Who are they? One should be very, very familiar. Abraham. Thank you. Father Abraham. And many sons, many sons and Father Abraham. The other one is David. We saw that Jesus justifies by faith. And not only that, does he justify when we place our faith in him and imputes his righteousness into our account. But he did it because of his righteousness through the shed blood of offering himself on the cross for us. That was chapter 5. And therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. And then he goes, he, goose, goose, goose on. He goes on to talk about now that you have been justified by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, let's talk about what happens after you've been saved. And we talked about how chapters 6, 7, and 8 are all two Christians talking about what has happened to you since becoming a Christian. That you're dead to the body of sin and you've been spiritually baptized into Christ. Not only do you have Christ living in you, you are in Christ. Talk about protection. It's also the most dangerous place to be when you're in the center of His will. But it's also the safest place to be. What a paradox. And then chapter 7. Not only are you positionally in Christ because you've been severed from this body of sin, yet we're still in this body until the day we die or the rapture. And that means we're always going to have a problem in the flesh. But there's hope. 
O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where he leads us in beautifully to chapter 8, talking about the Christian's power in the Spirit to overcome the problems of the flesh by reminding us of who we are in Christ because of what he's done. And we talk about this as it being the systematic flow of how God, through the Holy Spirit, has written this book through Paul. Now we begin tonight. And over the course of the next two weeks, we enter a parenthesis period, so to speak, of chapters 9, 10, and 11. Because once we get back to chapter 12... That's where Paul starts resuming what he kind of began in chapter 8 here, where he starts talking about, okay, now that we got all this covered and you know you have power and victory, because if God be for you, who can be against you? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Because of the birthrights, the privileges and promises you have as a son of God, how do you practically live this out in your daily life? That's what we're going to get to. But he pauses. And he takes a parenthesis period here in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And that's what I want to talk about in our intro before going on. Look at the introductory paragraph on your study sheet. Paul kicks off the second half of the dissertation on the New Testament doctrine with a parenthesis found in chapters 9 through 11. Rather than writing on all matters of faith and practice concerning the church, the Holy Spirit leads him to discuss the elephant in the room. What do we do with the nation of Israel? How do they fit into what God is doing? Rather, how, what do, how do they fit into what God is doing now in the church age? What do we do with all of those Old Testament promises that have yet to be fulfilled? Because John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, came and he tried to make straight the way, the path of the Lord, by letting everybody know, hey, the Messiah's coming, you better get ready. And then the Messiah actually does come, but they chop John the Baptist's head off, strike one. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin Council and all the leaders of the nation of Israel, they choose not to receive Christ as he came unto his own, and they put him up on the cross in legion with the Romans. And they put him up on the cross, strike two. And then in Acts chapter 7, because God is so abundantly merciful and He's merciful to the undeserving, He gives them one last shot as a nation to receive Jesus Christ through the preaching of Stephen. And they reject Him. Strike three. And from there, God decides, all right, temporary bill of divorcement as a nation and as working through a nation, Israel, temporarily done with you guys, I'm going to a people group who will receive me. And what happens in chapter 8? You have Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch who gets saved. And then you see Paul in chapter 9, get saved, the apostle to the Gentiles. And you see this predominantly Gentile body of the church being formed. But again, there's still those Old Testament promises of Israel talking about the future. What do we do with them? And that's what this parenthesis period is all about. How they fit in to what God is now doing in and through the church. 
Now, make no mistake about it. I go through this ad nauseum every single week, again, to show the systematic nature in which God has orchestrated the book of Romans, but also to remind you that what we're looking at here, although it is two and four, the church in Rome, which means it's two and four us right here, the subject matter that he is dealing with is Israel. The subject matter of everything he's talking about tonight is Israel. I say all that because there's going to be some pretty doctrinally heavy passages that we're going to look at tonight that we're going to have to address. And so I'm going to try to do it in the most simplest way I can, but for ease of access, if you look at your study sheet, all of the main points on your study sheet I have as the devotional practical applications. So that way, no matter how deep into the neck of the woods we get with some deep doctrinal stuff, we're ultimately going to bring it back to the practical of how does this apply to you guys right now in this room for where you're at. But those little dark bulleted points, as we're going to get to it, those are going to be some of the little bit more heavier doctrinal things, just so you guys know where we're going with this. And honestly, more, probably more so for me, so that I didn't get too lost in the thick of the woods with the doctrinal stuff and brought it back to the practical. But it's important to keep in mind, the topic over the next three weeks is Israel and their relation to us. Now, again, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Although we're talking about Israel... There's going to be a lot for you guys to glean tonight. I assure you of that. And it's in light of that that I've titled tonight's message, The Ghost of Israel Past, because it is dealing with their past. Follow along with me in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. You know, I've been accused of being uh, very wordy and redundant and verbose, but man, this gangster here in the first verse says the exact same things three times in a row. Do you think he's trying to get something across? Even further, he goes in verse 2. What is it that he's saying the truth and he's not lying and his conscience bears him witness? Verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are who? Israelites. You realize the magnitude of what he just said there? For someone like Paul to wish himself to be accursed for the sake of his people Israel. Somebody put that in your own words. What is he saying here? What's the, what's the worst curse anyone could have on them? Going to hell. Going to hell. Yes. Not receiving Christ and perishing forever in an eternity separated from Him. The Apostle Paul is saying that his heart is continually sorrowful and he is, has a heavy burden for his people, so much so that he would wish himself to be accursed that they might get what he's about to tell them. That they might get the promises that they squandered. And that's why on point number one, we're going to be talking about squandering or wasting the privileges and promises. Can anybody tell me which chapter in Romans that's about? Privileges, promises. Oh, I'm begging you. What? Do you know it? 
It's one we just spent the last two weeks looking at. Chapter 8, which is the privileges and promises of being a son of God. It's okay, you guys are on break next week. You can just revisit the podcasts. Here we're going to talk about squandering those privileges and promises. Israel had privileges and promises, and they squandered it. And if we're not careful too, we will do the exact same thing. Letter A, mercy that brings a burden for souls. We saw Paul's heart for it. Question D in point one, to what degree do you have great heaviness and continual sorrow in your heart for the lost? Notice how I didn't say the typical stereotypical leader question, do you have a burden in your heart? Well, see, if Christ is in you and he's put his spirit in you, then your heart should bleed for the same things that he's, his bleeds for. You should have the same cares as him. So for sure, if you're in Christ and he's in you, you have a burden for the lost. It's just a matter of to what degree. Because if you don't have a burden for the lost people in your sphere of influence, whether it be your family members, your friends, the people you go to school with, your teachers, one of two things. You are either lost or... Like the book of Matthew says, you've let iniquity abound and the love of many has waxed cold. So, to what degree do you have a great heaviness and continual sorrow? Or is it more kind of like a, uh, I mean, I guess I feel bad that that's what's going to happen to them. But, you know, I try inviting the church and they say no, so I guess that's just their lot. Does it cause you to weep for them? Does it drive you to the side of your bed at night where you are just drenching your bed with tears like David prayed? Where he says, I wet my couch with my tears because of the burden he had for his people, for the people that hurt him. Yes, even his enemies. The people who bullied him or made fun of him like they might for you guys. He had a great burden for them. Just as Paul had great heaviness and a continual sorrow in my heart. He says, is it like that for you? When was the last time you lost sleep over the fact that your friend might be going to hell forever? Lost sleep. Wept. Prayed for earnestly. And I'll tell you what. You want to have a burden for souls. If you want to be like Christ, well, here's what he was like. Matthew 9, 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with What? compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. I highlight shepherd for a reason because look what he equates it to. Verse 37, then say at the end of his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the what? Laborers are few. Hey, you want to be interested and involved in serving God? You want to work for Him in some capacity, not talking about full-time ministry, just talking about serving with the kids or being a servant wherever He, wherever, whenever, Lord, I'll follow you. You want to be a laborer? You're going to have to be a shepherd. And you know who the great shepherd, what he was like? He was moved with compassion on people. He looked at their state, didn't get ticked off at their stance or their leanings politically or spiritually, didn't get ticked off the things they got themselves in. No, he had compassion on them because they had no shepherd and there were no laborers to guide them and lead them to salvation. You want to be a laborer? 
you better have compassion for the lost like the shepherd did. Look at verse 4. So he says he's got this burden for the Israelites. And then he goes through and talks about everything they had. Look at verse 4 again. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption? In Exodus, God called them my sons, my son Israel. And the glory, the Shekinah glory shone upon Moses and shone upon Israel all throughout the wilderness. And the covenants, they had the Mosaic, the Abrahamic, the Noahic, the law, they had, they had the Davidic covenant. They have the new covenant given to them. It was given to them and the giving of the law and the service of God. Might want to mark that one down. And the what? Promises. promises. We just talked about in Romans 8 about the promises and privileges you have as a son of God. Not to get saved, no, as a son of God. They were given promises too. Verse 5, who are, whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. But they reject the amen. They reject that blessed God who came to them. Verse 6, not as though the word of God had taken none effect. Now look what he says here next. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen's preaching, he uses a very, very interesting phrase. When he's talking about Moses and Israel in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus, and even again later in the book of Numbers, in Acts chapter 7, he says the church that was in the wilderness. Now, the church, according to Ephesians 5, is the bride of Christ. There was no bride of Christ in Exodus. You know why he's using that word church there? To let us know that the word church is simply just a called out assembly of believers. People who believe God at what he says and do what he expects of them. And then in the wilderness, in the book of Exodus, there was this assembly of believers who got together and they were there. It's kind of like a church today. In light of that, and I look at this passage where he says, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. You know what he's kind of saying, practically speaking here? That not all people who go to church are of the church. Because in the Old Testament, just because there were people in that called out assembly in the wilderness, uh, they weren't true Israel. They didn't really believe the promises of God. Just read the book of Numbers and read the book of First and Second Samuel and how many revolts happened within Israel. That they were never really with Israel. They were never really with God. And it's the same thing here. Then he continues though. Neither, so he's going to compare something here, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. All right, get back to your Sunday school mindset. We're going back now to Genesis. We're talking about Abraham. Hey, we talked about Abraham in chapter 4 and how he's the model of faith. When God came to Abraham, he told Abraham, hey, look up into the, the sky and, and see all the stars. Can you count the stars? And Abe's like, no, I can't do it. And you know what God said? Hey, just like you can't count the stars, that's how much I'm going to multiply your seed. In other words, I'm going to make a great nation from your loins, Abraham, to the point that you're not even going to be able to count how many of them there are. And Abraham 
The Bible says in Genesis 15, verse 6, and also again in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham chose to believe what God told him, and God took his righteousness and put it on Abraham. He's the model of faith for us. But, was Isaac the firstborn son? No. Abraham looks at his situation, how old he is. He looks at his wife, Sarah, see how old she is. And like, uh, I don't know if this is uh, going to work out. Sarah goes, hey, why don't you go to my much younger handmaid and have a child there? And that was Ishmael. The Bible talks about in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4 that he's not the child of promise, the firstborn son. He was the child of the flesh because Abraham chose not to wait. You can get into a lot of trouble when you choose not to wait. And I'm not just talking about, you know, until you're married to keep yourself pure. You can be, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble when you choose not to wait on God for the right timing for other things. Dating, job, no job. Uh, am I going to go to college? Do I need to decide that right now? When you're hasty to make a decision, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. Abraham found that out the hard way. But he's still a son of Abraham, is he not? But that doesn't make him a part of Israel. No. The promised seed came through who? Isaac. So looking back at verse 7, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, Ishmael. Because from Ishmael and all of his lineage come all of those ites that you find in Judges and in throughout the Old Testament that gave Israel a whole bunch of trouble because they were persecuting them, fighting against them. Yeah, which means that's another practical application. When you choose not to wait, your decisions could have long-lasting repercussions. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise. Isaac are counted for the seed. Now, we talked about how true Israel is spiritual Israel. Remember in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Romans, we talked about how that because Abraham is our model of faith, all those who put their faith and trust in Christ, they become a part of that spiritual promise of Abraham, and they become a spiritual son of Abraham. Remember we talked about that? If not, refer back to the podcast. That's what he's talking about here. But again, not to get so caught up in the doctrinal, how does this apply to you guys? Well, again, as I look at it, as I already kind of talked about, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. That's kind of like saying, well, just because you grew up in a church all your life or just because you show up here every single week doesn't mean you're a part of the church, the bride of Christ. Doesn't mean you're saved. There's no doubt people who come to this building every single Sunday and Wednesday and they're lost. They're part of the church, but they're not in the church because they're not in Christ. They're not a part of his body. But then there's this whole thing about children who aren't children. And I couldn't help but think about people who grow up in Christian homes. Many of you in this room grow up, have grown up in a Christian home. 
And you think just because, well, your dad and your mom, Abraham, you go, they go to this church and they're saved. And because I've heard the gospel so many stinking times through Sunday school class and through kids club and through VBS and then through junior high and then through winter camp and then through summer camp. And of course, my parents telling it to me because I've heard it so many times. I know what to do to be saved. But it's nothing more than intellectual assent. It's nothing more than just, I know it up here, and I even prayed to receive Christ, but it just was up here. You guys remember what Amanda said, Amanda Ashton, at the Progressive Dinner this past Sunday? 12 inches from the head to the heart. I find that happens a lot with people who grew up in Christian homes. They know what salvation is. They know how they have to believe God to have it counted to them for righteousness. They just did what 1 Corinthians 15.2 says. They believed in vain because it was all up here, intellectual head knowledge, intellectual assent to the gospel. So on your outline, point two. Like Israel, many who go to church or grow up in Christian homes waste away the promises that's offered to them. Not all who go to church are the church. Again, here's Christ's heartbeat for those who are walking away from him right there. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. Can you imagine? You know, I'll be honest, I haven't seen it happen yet in this youth ministry, but when I was a part of this youth ministry as a student, and even for the graduating classes after me, I saw this kind of stuff happening all the time. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets. They were killing their own. You know how many times I saw other Christians, other believers in my youth group lead other Christians in my youth group into sin? Killing their walk? You know how many times I've seen girls in, my, in years afterwards leading other girls to drink? How many times I've seen other guys in my youth group years afterwards leading other guys in solid to do drugs? Or worse, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets. They were killing their own. And that's what happens if you're not a godly example to your peers around you. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? You might want to make note of that. This is, I think, don't quote me on this. Search it out yourselves. I want to say this is the only passage where Christ ever likens himself to not a chicken, male, but as a hen, a mother, because Jesus Christ has a nurturing aspect to him, where he will gather all who come unto him. As a hen doth gather her brood under her wings. But note how he ends it here. And ye would not. Does not say that they could not. They chose, with their own free will, to not go and trust the Messiah. To not believe what he had to say. And to not do what he asked them to do. Not all who go to church are the church. That was Paul's heart for people like this, and it should be our heart for the same. Christian home doesn't mean child of God. Oh, check this passage out. Luke 19.41 
And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Keep in mind, this is the city that's rejecting him. This is the city that wants nothing to do with him. And his heart for them is broken, and he's weeping over them, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, if you would just get saved. But now they are hid from thine eyes. Now they're hid from thine eyes. Meaning you keep rejecting grace. You keep rejecting mercy. You keep taking for granted the Bible stories you hear year after year after week. Eventually, they are going to be hid from you. We just talked about that with the reason why Christ spoke in parables not too long ago. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children with thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Not 40 years after Christ spoke this, this prophecy came true. Might want to mark down, we'll learn this on Sunday and how to study the Bible. The number 40, anybody know what that number represents in the Bible? Judgment. Not even 40 years since he spoke this. In 70 AD, Roman Emperor Titus sieged Jerusalem for five months. The enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, keep thee in on every side. And you know what Titus decided to do? He decided to crucify 500 Jews per day. Laying them even with the ground, as you need to start out a crucifix, and thy children with thee, and he didn't spare the children. Oh, and you know what else he did? They shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. He destroyed the temple that was in Jerusalem, leveled it to the ground, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Those of you, maybe this is you, maybe it's not. But if you're playing the Christian home card, and so therefore I have an intellectual assent that I pray to prayer, so I'm a child of God, and you keep rejecting the visions from the Word of God, the, the warnings, the mercy of the Word of God, well, let's just say that this verse is kind of going to be the running theme for the rest of the night. Because it was for Israel. But you see, in letter B, there's still mercy even upon the stubborn and sinful. All right, you guys are going to have to listen up faster because uh, I'm going to run out of time if I don't. It's a joke. Look with me in verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Oh, excellent. All right. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, before I go further, I'm going to do something here. Verse 11 you're about to see is a parenthesis, right? Now, typically when you read a parenthesis, either in a book or, you know, in an excerpt of something, usually it's kind of like a, a side note kind of a thing, right? Which the reason for the parenthesis is that, hey, even if we were to take this out, you'd still be able to read before the parenthesis and after the parenthesis, and it makes sense. We're going to do that here for just a second. I'm going to read verse 10. I'm going to jump down to verse 12 and 13. I'm going to address that. And then we're going back to the parenthesis. Okay? So not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, 
even by our father Isaac, verse 12, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. All right, so now we're on to Isaac is finally born from Abraham, and he gets a wife, Rebekah, and the two of them conceive. What happens there? What's in her womb? Twins. Twins, yeah. Esau and Jacob. Who comes out first? Esau. He's the elder. He is the oldest. He is the firstborn, like Ishmael. He's the firstborn. And then the second birth. For those of you listening on podcast, I just winked really hard. The second birth was Jacob. He comes out holding that heel of his brother. And it says the elder, which is who? Esau. He's the older brother. He should serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So real quick on this whole thing. This is quoting straight from Genesis chapter 25. Or sorry, Genesis, yeah, Genesis 25. And what he's talking about here as far as hate and love. It's comparative love. And you'll find this out, for those of you guys who are students here on Sundays, you'll find this out in two weeks' time. Comparative love is just using one thing to compare it to another. I'll explain that here in just a little bit. The actual passage he's quoting here is Genesis 25, 23. And the Lord said unto her to what? Mark that down. Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder nation shall serve the younger nation. You know how we know that to be true, aside from the fact that God just said two nations are in thee? Because individually and personally speaking, Esau never served Jacob personally. I say all that because when we see that he's talking about Jacob and Esau, he's not talking about Jacob and Esau. He's talking about the two nations that these two individuals represent. Because two nations are in thy womb. Because eventually, Jacob grew up, had 12 sons, who just so happened to be the 12 tribes of Israel. And Esau, when he got a little bit older, happened to be the guy who started the place of Edom, which became the home of the Edomites, which were some of the severest and most brash persecutors of Israel and still affect them to this day. Again, read Galatians 3 and 4. Same with the Ishmaelites. We're talking nations here. Now, this whole idea of comparative love, there's several verses in the Bible, and if you want to take notes, mark these down. Where God will say something like in Deuteronomy chapter 21, if a man have two wives and he loves the one and hates the other, Deuteronomy 21 verse 19, or 15, sorry, actually is that phrase. And he goes on to talk about, here, here's what you should do. And he's not actually saying that he's advocating, yes, I do want you to marry two people, and I do want you to love the one, I want you to hate the other, despise it. Because according to the book of Matthew, when someone has hate in their heart towards somebody else, what's that equated to in God's eyes? Murder. Why would God advocate the murder of a wife? 
unless there's a sin issue, which again is covered in the law with like adultery. But that's not what he's talking about here. You guys know how in Matthew chapter 6, when Christ says, ye cannot serve two masters, for either you will love the one and hate the other, he follows it up with, you cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, he's comparing two things. If you have a job, and you're letting that job get in the way of Wednesdays and Sundays, and getting in the way of you reading your Bible on a daily basis, you better make a choice because really what that's telling you is you don't love God. You actually hate Him. He uses the word hate to compare, to use such strong language to show you what you're actually doing to your walk, which is killing it. Again, another place. Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. You know what that one says? If any man love father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. In other words, nothing should come in the way of your relationship with Christ. You know how he says it in the parallel passage in Luke 14, 26? If any man hate not father and mother, he's not telling you to hate your father and mother. But when you compare spiritual things with spiritual things, Matthew and Luke, you find, oh, he's talking about a comparative love. He's saying that your love for Christ should be so strong, it's almost as though you hate anything and everything else that's going to get in the way of that. Again, comparing Scripture with Scripture in the mouth of two or three witnesses, the mouth of two or three verses, to find that out. You getting those notes down? Excellent. Good. Not only that, John 12, 25, where he says, if you hate your life, then you're going to have eternal life. Obviously, he doesn't want you to hate your life. It's a comparative love. He does not hate Esau. You will not find anywhere in the Bible where God says that he hates sinners. Sin, yes. Doctrines of people, yes, Revelation 2. Deeds of people, yes, also Revelation 2. Never will he hate people. And again, the context here is talking about nations. And not only that, specifically, he's talking about nations, one of which will serve the other. On that point, I want to go back to verse 11. I hope you guys are following along, because again, as I said, this is some deep doctrinal stuff. But let me just tell you that a lot of things are misconstrued in this chapter because... They are not rightly dividing how God systematically has organized the monarch of the New Testament book that presents doctrine and New Testament theology. It is not being rightly divided, and because of that, many people get off in the church today on this passage and this entire chapter talking about nations, talking about Israel. I'll bring it to the practical. Bear with me and hang with me. Look at verse 11. For the children being not yet born. Which children? Jacob and Esau. So he's not talking about every single child. He's not talking about Genesis 1-1 or before that. He's talking about Jacob and Esau. You're right, because that's the context. Being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him that calleth. 
Now, on to this whole thing of election. We talked last week in Romans chapter 8, which, by the way, is talking about the Christian's power in the Spirit to overcome the problems of the flesh. And Romans 8 is not at all talking about how to be saved. And Romans chapter 8 is also talking about those privileges and promises we have in Christ being a Christian. We came across this word called predestination. You guys remember we talked about it? We talked about how that's a word that is taken out of context in a lot of Christian circles today. Uh, you know, again, those who purport uh, it, it, or, or teach Reformed theology. This is big. Uh, 103.3 Moody Radio, Moody Bible Institute, is a Reformed theology Christian college. There's many other universities that are like it. Uh, this word election is very, very synonymous with predestination as it pertains to this doctrine. Election, much like predestination, does not have to do with salvation, according to the Bible. And we'll show that later on tonight. As we saw last week with predestination, it had to do with the adoption, that is to wit, the redemption of our body, the new body we are going to get when we inherit it at the rapture or in death. When we get our inheritance, when we've reached our final destination. Google Maps, remember that analogy? Now this whole thing with election, I didn't plan on it to be like this, but last week we just had an election. And what did everybody's over the age of 18 in this room do? They went out and they chose somebody to serve them. But here's the caveat. Nobody that I voted for in the voting booth, nobody that I voted for was an unwilling candidate. Everybody who was on that ballot was a willing candidate, which means they signed up to serve me, and I got to choose, based upon their willingness, whom I wanted to serve, who I wanted to serve me. Election in the Bible has to do, according to the context of Romans chapter 9 and Genesis 25, has to do with service. Election is not talking about salvation. I will talk about that in a little bit. Bear with me. So we're looking here, and we see on point number one on our outline. How does this apply to you guys? We can never forget the fact that we have been saved to serve. Because election comes after salvation. After God rescued and saved Israel in the wilderness from Egypt, they chose to apply the blood upon the doorposts in Exodus 12 and Exodus 13 so that the angel would pass over them. And they got saved and were delivered. They chose to cross over, trusting by faith Moses across the Red Sea. And as a result of them choosing to obey Christ by faith, the angel of the Lord, God in the Old Testament, it was Christ. When they chose by faith to follow him, God then decided, you are my nation that is going to serve me. That's why in Isaiah 45 verse 4, he calls Israel, mine servant, my elect. When you see the word elect in the Bible or election, it has to do, yes, it's God choosing. We'll see that in a little bit. It has to do with him choosing you for service. 
and it's not unconditional. There are conditions for God choosing you for service. We'll touch on that in a little bit. But for you guys, you have to understand the moment you chose to receive Christ as Savior, it wasn't just for you to sit and take up space in a pew every single Sunday and Wednesday. There is a massive, massive plan that God has where He wants to see all of the world receive His Son to be conformed to the image of His Son, and He wants to use you guys as the vehicle to speak and preach that truth so that there'd be more sons and daughters of God. That only comes when you decide, yep, here I am, Lord, send me. Just like Isaiah 6, I'm choosing to go. Here I am. Use me. I'll take notes, I'll study, I'll read, I'll be discipled, I'll serve here and there, just so I can do whatever it takes to be a vessel fit for the Master's use to bring more glory to you and to see more sons and daughters saved. Same thing with Israel. You see, just like Esau and just like Jacob, as I mentioned already, Esau was the firstborn. You guys understand, as far as patriarchy is concerned, the firstborn was supposed to inherit all of the blessings and all of the promises? Just like Ishmael, he was the firstborn son. He should have received all the blessings and all the promises. You know what God decided to have instead upon Jacob and upon Isaac? Mercy. If you look on your study sheet, you'll see there's a running theme of tonight's message, and it is mercy. You mean to tell me, deceiver Jacob, liar Jacob, trickster Jacob, God chose to have mercy on that deviant, on that liar? Yeah, because God chose to have mercy on this deviant, on this liar, on this trickster, on this deceiver. God has mercy on those who are undeserving, not those who are deserving. That's why Ishmael and that's why Esau did not get the blessings. And there brings up this whole idea of foreknowledge. As I mentioned last week, foreknowledge is just simply God knows everything. He knows before it happens. That's foreknowledge. God knew and he foresaw the future that Esau was going to become the Edomites and he had pity on poor, weak Jacob. And you know what happened to Jacob? Jacob came to a point in his life where he saw his need. He came to the end of his sin. He came to the end of his, dece- his deception and his trickery. And he allowed God to break him. Genesis 32. And as a result of that, he became a new creature. He was the second born born again. And because he became a new creature, his walk was forever different from that wrestling match in Genesis 32, and his name was changed. His identity was changed to Israel, who became a nation. We're talking about nations here. Do you see the free will choice The opposite end of the spectrum of Reformed theology, also known as Calvinism, says that because God has foreknowledge, He already knows who's going to to receive Him and who's not going to receive Him. 
And so God has already chosen from before the foundation of the earth, unconditionally, His elect, those who are going to be saved. And everybody else, they got the short end of the stick. And when God comes to you and it's your time to be in the elect, they have a doctrine called irresistible grace. We'll look on that in a little bit. Irresistible grace means that when it's your time to get saved, there's nothing you can do to resist Him because you're part of the elect. God willed it since before. It predestinated it in eternity past. And they use passages like this. And man, as we keep reading, there's going to be other passages that are just as tricky. But we're going to work through it all. But here's how it basically works out. Look at your outline. Actually, before we do that, look at the verse up here. 1 Peter 1, 2. The Bible does use the word election. But again, it's service after salvation. 1 Peter 1, 2. Peter is writing to the strangers scattered abroad. People factor. Time factor. Those of you students of the Bible study. Elect according to. See, if election was unconditional, meaning that God chose you to be saved before you were even born and you have nothing to do with it, then why is there an according to here? It's conditional. Election is conditional. So what's the condition for being in the elect service? Here's the condition. To the foreknowledge of God, he already knows it, and here's what he's willed. Through sanctification of the Spirit. When do you get sanctified? When you've been baptized into Christ. Because through His blood, you've been justified by faith. When you choose to receive Him by faith. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the... What? Now, did Jesus die in eternity past? Before the foundation of the world? No, Jesus died at Calvary. That's where the blood was shed. That's why Ephesians 1.7 says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So check out your outline here. Here's how to summarize all of this. First bullet point. God elects or chooses, just as a lot of us chose candidates last week, God elects or chooses you to serve Him after you've been justified by faith in the shed blood of Christ. Romans 3, 4, and 5. Now, do you see why I went through that in the introduction? That's what those chapters are about. Where he then sanctifies you, please somebody fill in the blank. In Christ, in Romans chapter 6, because that's the position you find yourself in, after you've been justified by what? faith. It's your choice to choose, just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for what? Righteousness. That is what election is. That's the context of Romans 9. We're talking about two nations serving in the Old Testament. Yes, election is in the New Testament, but everywhere you find in the New Testament, it's to Christians who have already trusted Christ by faith and have been put in Christ. They were willing candidates. Again, we looked at this week after week, Ephesians 1.13. In whom ye also trusted, you trusted, Meaning you had a choice in the matter. It wasn't foreordained without your will and consent. 
in whom ye also trusted after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Because in Ephesians 1 is where you also find, like we looked at last week, predestination. According as he hath chosen us, elected, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, not that we would be saved. He chose us to be holy and without blame when we got in him, which happened right here in verse 37. The conditions and requirements are that you have to trust. When do you trust? After you heard the gospel. And then what do you do? You believe it. That's the predestination. That's the adoption of children that Romans chapter 8 talks about. Again, a future event where you get a brand new body that never sins against God ever again. That's what it is. Next bullet point. What does those verses summarize? Simply put, it's always been his plan since eternity past to have a people group, the church, that would be conformed to his image. So you see how election, it's always conditional. The condition is you got to be in Christ. God's basically saying, hey, I am going to choose who I'm going to save. You know what the requirement is for who I choose to be saved? you got to be in Christ. How do you get in Christ? Well, he had to shed his blood, and you, by faith, put your trust in that, and you're positioned in Christ. That's Romans 3, 4, and 5. And so he chooses, yep, you're in. Because you've chosen to receive me, you're in the elect. I've got a mission for you to do, and this service is monumental and epic, and it's going to change eternity. That's what it is. That's the election. See, in the Old Testament, though, because God works differently in different dispensations, He chose to work through nations. Today, it's through a church. You, if you're saved, you're a part of that epic plan. So you ought to take heed to what Israel did so that what happened to them doesn't happen to you guys with the decisions you're probably about to make tomorrow at school. Continuing on. Number two. This undeserved mercy should cause us to take heed where we stand, lest we fall. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Yikes. That sounds like it's out of our control. Verse 16. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Yikes. Sounds like it's out of our control. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Yikes, sounds like it's out of our control. Because there's several passages in the book of Exodus where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That sounds as though he wasn't predestined to be in the elect. More on that in a little bit. Verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. You see, again, God's foreknowledge. God knows what's going to happen before it even happens. In Exodus 3.19, if you want to write that passage down, God knew that Pharaoh was never going to let the Israelites go. God knew it. He knew nothing that, that God or Moses did was Israel going to be let go because of him. He knew it. So you know what God did? He decided, well, since I know Pharaoh's not going to let my people go, Hey, Mo, come here. You're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to say, hey, let my people go. But he's not going to let them go. So you know what I did? Well, not yet. I did. 
Okay, now I just did it. I killed him for you. He's dead. Yeah, you guys are all free. Just go ahead and do it. Do you see how much easier that would have been? If God knew that Pharaoh wasn't going to let the Israelites go, why didn't he just do that? Instead, to go along with the theme of tonight's message, God gave ten chances of mercy to Pharaoh to repent, and he rejected each and every single time. Otherwise, if that wasn't God's will and God's plan, and if God didn't want to leave it to Pharaoh's free will choice to choose whether to reject or to obey, to harden his heart or to have it softened, why would he give him ten chances? Why not just kill him dead since he already knows everything? No, it's because God is merciful. And he allows everyone a free will chance and choice to choose to receive him or not didn't change Pharaoh's ability to choose. His own choices hardened, or choices hardened his heart. Because mercy allows choice. True love allows choice. Why else do you think God put a tree in the Garden of Eden? To give Adam and Eve a choice. Why does He let you get away with the sin that you continue to get away with? Because love allows choice. As crazy as that sounds... If you get nothing else down, write this down. Do you guys know that there's a difference between mercy and grace? We say those two words like they're synonymous, but they're not. You know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you so rightly deserve. Each and every single one of us have gone our own way. And because of that, the wages of our sin is death. We deserve death and hell. We deserve the butt whooping that we should get every single time we disobey Him. And yet, because of His mercy, He chooses not to give us what we deserve. Now conversely, grace. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is you getting something, receiving something that you don't deserve. I say all that because the theme of tonight, really, and the theme of chapter 9, it's not about grace. A lot of churches get this passage wrong, and they think it's all about grace, how to be saved. When really it's about God not giving mankind, stubborn and sinful mankind, what he so rightly deserves. He has mercy on them instead. Jacob didn't deserve to get all the blessings. Esau did. But God had mercy and pity on poor Jacob. And he chose to be transformed as a result of it. You see, he's not talking about this will and this mercy, it's not out of our control. Simply put, look at your outline. This undeserved mercy should cause us to take heed where we stand, lest we fall. That's exactly what First Corinthians 10.12 says. And the next bullet point, you can't make God have mercy on you by exerting your will over His. That's what it means when He says, uh, where are we at? Verse, verse 16. It's not of Him that willeth. He's basically saying that you didn't make God give you mercy. 
You didn't will it. Cross-reference, because we compare Scripture with Scripture, so you're not just believing me. John 1.11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Go back to the verses we just looked at the very beginning of this class. But as many as received him, they chose to receive him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, Romans 8. Even to them that believe on his name. Verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, you want to know what God's will is? You receive him and he chooses to give you mercy when you receive him by faith. That's the context of it. That's the context of Romans chapter 9. And you can look up Titus chapter 3 later. Actually, I got it right here. Won't be long. According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace. How did we get mercy? How are we regenerated or born again? By being justified by grace. What does Romans 5 1 say? Therefore, being justified by faith in the grace, because he had mercy on you and sent a messenger your way to open up the Bible and share with you what the Bible says about salvation. Who have you done that with this week for someone who needs mercy? You still got time. The week's not over yet. What he's saying is you can't make God have mercy on you by exerting your will over His. His will chooses to have mercy on you after you receive Him. Consider this, or considering this, second bullet point, walk humbly, lest being lifted up with pride you fall. If this is how we got saved, by His mercy, being justified by His grace, in faith that we choose to receive Him, Colossians 2.6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? Walk ye in Him. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Alright, three minutes left to cover point number two. Honor or dishonor? The choice is yours. I think we can do it. Letter A. Mercy to change what type of vessel you are. Look with me in verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me. Now keep in mind, is Paul saying this? No. He says, thou wilt say unto me. Thou wilt say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? You know what Paul's answer to that person asking that? Nay. You can resist the will of God. You can resist his grace and mercy. It happened all throughout the Bible. Side note. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter, look at the word picture he's pointing here, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? In other words, couldn't God in the eternity past have chosen that these are the people that are going to be saved? They're my elect. These are the people that, sorry, got the short end of the stick. They're not elected. They're going to hell. They got no choice in the matter. They have no free will. Doesn't matter if someone witnesses to them. I'm not going to save them because they weren't a part of my elect. I have my vessels of honor and I have my vessels of dishonor. That's what he's saying here. Or that's what many Christians try to say with these passages. Verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Remember our man Pharaoh? 
You look up in the Bible, yeah, there are times where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Absolutely. But just as many times, if not actually, look it up, there's more times. I might actually get you guys a handout next week of all the verses where it says this. More times than that, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You go throughout all the Old Testament, you'll see how Israel hardened their own heart when they chose not to submit and surrender to the authority of Christ. See, when it says they fitted to destruction, all you got to do is just compare Scripture with Scripture. Look what the Bible says. God hardens people's hearts when they choose not to respond to His mercy. When they harden their heart first. I'll have an illustration for that in just a moment. Verse 23, And that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He hath afore prepared unto glory. Malachi chapter 4 says that Jesus Christ, He is the Son of Righteousness, spelled S-U-N. He's the Son. And you know, in Psalm 22, it talks about a heart of wax that we have. A heart of wax being melted. And as we just saw in the illustration here, clay. You guys know what happens to a clay pot when there's not being water thrown on it? It's hard. It hardens. The pot hardens. Or when it's put into a brick oven. That's how you make a pot. The clay hardens. So here you have two types of heart. A heart of wax, Psalm 22. Heart of clay. Jeremiah 18 and Romans chapter 9 here. And you have the sun, a heat source. On both of them. The same sun, because Jesus in Hebrews 13.8 is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same sun and the same power of the same sun shines on both vessels equally. But one hardens and one softens. Why? What changes? It's the same sun, so it's not God who changes. If a heart gets soft versus a heart that gets hardened, you know what changes? It depends on what type of vessel you are. Mm -hmm. The same power, look at point one on your outline, the same power of the sun that softens the heart of wax, Moses hardens the heart of clay. Again and again and again, Pharaoh had chance after chance to respond to the mercy of God, and he didn't. And I'm telling you guys this, some of you who your parents have talked with you again and again about issues, your teachers or your disciples or your pastors or your leaders have talked to you again and again about the same things. If you do not take their advice, you do not take their counsel, you are flirting with becoming clay and hardening your heart. Every time Pharaoh rejected God's gracious mercy to them, his heart got harder. And every time you choose not to take the advice and the counsel that your leaders, your parents, your pastors give you, hard heart. You chose it. The heat's coming down on you. Yeah, it's God. But you chose to be a vessel of clay instead of a heart of wax that is soft and tender and melts to God's conviction. Therefore, point two, the results of hardening and softening revolve around the vessel and how it receives the sun. That's Romans chapter 7. 
The good that I want to do, I do it not. The thing that I don't want to do, I do it. Gee, it's kind of funny how Romans chapter 9 is kind of being a summary also for everything we've covered in Romans so far. It's almost like he's systematic on this. So you've got to ask yourself, can God create a, hard, a heart so hard that He can't soften it? Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? We often look at that verse thinking about there's nothing impossible for Him. You think about the hardest heart of the most stubborn person you go to school with that is rejecting the gospel day in and day out. There's hope for that person. They just need to respond to His gracious and merciful call of the gospel. There's nothing too hard for Him. You see, mercy in point letter B provides a blessing to the undeserving as well as a warning if not received. You see, in point one, it's a blessing to us Gentiles that God extended His merciful offer of salvation unto us. Look at verse 24. Even us to whom He hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Again, we're talking about nations. As He saith also in O.C., that's Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Esaias also cried, uh, crieth concerning them. This is Isaiah. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. I guess if there's a silver lining in all this, the Jews rejecting the promise, rejecting their Messiah, it opened the way for you and I to get saved. So those of you who are squandering your promises and privileges as a son or daughter of God, you might fall under the heavy hand like Pharaoh did. You might be a vessel that is fitting yourself for destruction like Pharaoh and Israel did. Maybe it's to the furtherance of the gospel for somebody else. Maybe at your fall, somebody else gets saved. I guess hallelujah for them. But take heed where ye stand, lest ye fall. Because in verse 29, And as Isaiah said before, Except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been as, a, as Sodom, and been made like unto Gomorrah. They got burned and destroyed. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? Oh, don't miss these last couple verses. Hang in there. We're coming to a close. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, or why, in other words? Because they sought it not by what? But as it were by the works of the law, they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense for the people, in other words, who already made up their minds. Remember when we looked at Ezekiel 14? The God and the idols a couple Sundays ago? And look how he ends this beautiful chapter. And who so ever that opens it up for anyone even Pharaoh even someone as hard hearted as Pharaoh even someone who might think God can never save me whosoever it's open to all whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed you see I look at these passages and in point number two to close out your study sheet I see a warning to the church to not squander our privileges and promises as Israel did. Why? 
Final passage, Matthew 21. Jesus saith unto them, remember the question I asked you, can God harden a heart so much? Again, because of the vessel. Can God harden a heart so hard that He can't soften it? Yes, and in some cases, it comes through this. Jesus saith unto them, did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? The stumbling stone we just read in Romans 9. He's talking about Christ. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, Gentiles, church, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be what? You have a choice to choose to be broken when you fall. When you realize what your sin has gotten you into, when you realize that you have been rejecting Him, you have a choice to fall upon the rock, the stone, Christ, and be broken just as Jacob was broken and had his complete entire walk changed. But on whomsoever it shall fall, the stone, meaning if you don't fall on the stone... Those of you who keep squandering your privileges and promises by living your life for yourself, whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. It happened to Israel. Physically in history and all throughout history. And I've seen it happen to Christians and it can happen to you. Where if you're not willing to be made broken by God, if you're not willing to be broken because of your sin and your lack of obedience, He's going to fall down on you. His Word is like a hammer, and He will grind you to powder. It might be in an embarrassing scenario in a situation that you will never recover from. Happen to Israel. Don't let it happen to you. Let's pray.